0: Welcome to Dig This, a podcast about using archaeology, heritage, and business to do some good in this world. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amanda. Join us in a guest or two as we reevaluate and decolonize our work, our relationships, and our values. We're recording from the unceded territory of the Shimshan Nation, the Kitsilis people in Terrace, BC. And also recording from Bowser, B.C. In the beautiful unceded territory of the Qualicum First Nation. This is our gratitude season where we're showcasing and celebrating and talking with and about our team members. Hello, Tannis, and welcome to your life. I mean, welcome to the podcast. (laughs) How are you? I'm good, you? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I'm so excited to have you here as part of our gratitude season where we're highlighting our team um, and the cool things that they're doing. Um, And I love the topic that we're talking about today. So um, I'll introduce you. So we have Tannis Wilson uh, with us, who is one of our archaeologists and conservers working in our terrace office. And I wonder... If, Tannis, you could give an introduction to yourself as well. Uh,
1: yes, I am um, Heisla. Uh, my family comes from Kimano, so we're uh, Hanaxera. And um, I s- moved home in 2019. And as soon as I moved home, I got into a Royal Roads program. Literally three days after I moved home, all my stuff was all packed up still. I was already (laughs) in school. So uh, it was really by luck and just kind of winging it the whole way. But uh, I really enjoyed the uh, programs that I was in. It really reminded me of uh, growing up out in like Kimano and Kitlope. So I kind of just continued with it and. I got an internship with Clienza for like three weeks. And that's when we did, I think it was the second weird, the second
0: shift up in Menepe. Yeah,
1: we are removal. Yeah. And then after that, I was with uh, Triton for about a year. And while I was with Triton, the third shift was going to start. So I kind of talked my way on to uh, the Minute Bay crew <laughs>
0: and <laughs> kind of just stayed after that. <laughs> yeah, we've been really happy to have you. And and I feel like I don't often get a chance to chat with you. Um so this is pretty special for me. And and the 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 role that you have at Cleanza is very special as well. And it, it's something that I don't know a lot about um preservation. And so it's very um exciting to get your perspective about it. So I wonder if we can kind of set the scene uh, by talking about the project that we first worked on together um, in Heisla territory. The uh,
1: site was found I believe through LNG and therefore they had to like help remove and preserve them.
0: The fish weirs that we found had to be removed. Yeah the fish weirs Mm -hmm. yes yes. Yes, because the
1: the land was going to get kind of upgraded, I guess, to help. Yeah. with
0: depending, depending, it's going to be a, a bunch of new habitat Yeah, uh, there in the bay.
1: Yeah, and I think all together we did maybe like four to five shifts there. Mm-hmm. I think I was a part of four of them.
0: And I think I was only a part of two of them, maybe, maybe one. <laughs> so I think it just think seemed two. like. Too, it just seemed like it was always winter. <laughs> yeah, 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 it was. <laughs> it was always winter. It was always cold. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so maybe we can talk a little bit about what fish weirs are, because not all listeners will understand, you know, what a fish weir is and, and kind of the site, the landscape, you know, one of the things in archeology span is we talk about sites. Like it's like, here is a lithic site and here is a culturally modified tree site. But really what we're talking about are landscapes, right? Like people are using the whole landscape. And so one of the interesting things at Minette Bay is we have a lot of different Um, Site types, but including fish weirs, and I wonder if you could speak a little bit to like what a fish weir is, and maybe what the landscape would have looked like.
1: So, a fish weir is a um, native design fish trap. Before like um, settlers came, that's how we would fish. So, they would set up these uh, stakes or or boulders just to trap the fish when the tide come came in. They'd get trapped in the weirs, and then the tide would go out, the women would go down and um, collect the fish that got trapped.
0: Right, and so was it a particular kind of fish that we had in Manette Bay?
1: Basically, it's just the speculation on what kind. Like, I, I kind of think with, with the one uh, feature that we found, it to me, it kind of looked like it was used for um, hairy snakes. Mm. Mm-hmm. so like the log was pinned under I think it was eight fish weirs and it, to me it looked like it would have had like some kind of netting under there to
0: right collect the hairy dinks and was that the one that was in that side channel so not right out in the bay yeah. but was in that side channel up yeah. there yeah Yeah. and so interesting i didn't realize uh like that maybe herring row was being harvested so that's that that herring run that we have down here on the island is at the end of february beginning of march basically we're coming into it pretty quickly here and is that around the same time that that herring run would
1: be it's it's usually after oolican season
0: oh okay so a bit a bit later yeah right Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah and that was the first fish bear site um of that size uh, that I had ever worked on. So it was super mind blowing. And it's such an interesting story for the community. Um, and one of the really exciting things that Heisler did was commission the production of a film related to this project. Um, which we have uh, in a number of places online so it's on uh, the Heisla webpage and it's also on our webpage and it's called um, Since Time Immemorial and it's such a cool story Um, and so what kind of do you remember what kind of dates and and we got from this and and how it impacted the community? So the youngest fish weir that we have
1: I believe is a hundred and like 48 years old and the oldest one is 2800 and something I can't remember but it's it's pretty up there and it it basically says that we've been working on this mm-hmm. land for that long we can prove it now it's mm-hmm. not just oral history yeah, yeah 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 exactly
0: and unfortunately in a B- in BC we haven't always recognized the strength of oral histories Um, And so uh, that's something as a society, where learning is a really important part of the histories that were here before settlers arrived. um, And that tells of that deep history. So we have this um, archaeological roof that supports the oral histories that were already known, you know, almost 3000 years old. And I remember when we Uh, We're recording the film and we were talking about that with the community and it was really emotional because it proved what people had long known and it supported the Heisla strength of claim for the territory, which again, Heisla already knew, but the way our court system works is the burden of proof is put on the communities to prove that they were here as opposed to the burden of proof should be put on the government to prove that they weren't here.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah what is it called we we are here the first film
0: when it, uh, I think we called it since time immemorial so yeah yeah we have uh,
1: Christmas um Christmas dinners with uh, each of the major cities that all the Heislows live in and at the time I was living in Vancouver so they had released that to our uh, Christmas dinner first and I sat there I was like that would be pretty awesome to be part of I like, I I was sitting there and I you can see like the tears coming, coming down my face. I was like, I want to be a part of that. And this was like, before we had even discussed on moving home. So it like literally just all lined up. It was so cool.
0: Yeah. You were being told to come home. <laughs> yeah. Basically. It's kind of, it kind of how it seemed, right? Yeah. 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 That, I mean, that's awesome. So so we're talking about like the importance of fishwears, and not, not just fish weirs. This is a really dynamic landscape. So we have village sites. We have culturally modified trees in the area. We have trails. Um, there's lots medicine of patches. medicine patches, cultivated forest uh, patches, gathering areas, tons and tons of stuff. Really dynamic landscape. Um, kind of a very special feeling to it as well. When you stand in yeah. Manette Bay, it, it feels really yeah. special. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and so these are all really sensitive sites in and of themselves, but we're really talking about kind of the fish wears today as an example of preservation techniques and, and just not only how can we improve preservation techniques, but why we should Improve preservation technique. So I wonder if you could kind of take us through um, the process that you've been doing uh, at our office, right from you know when the fishware stakes come into our office, that process, and then kind of what we've been doing recently, which is now getting ready to transfer stewardship uh, to Ottawa. So I wonder if you could kind of take us through that process and your role in that.
1: Yes. So. When we got the stakes out of the ground, we would try to clean up most of the like sediment on the weirs at the site. That way it would be like easier to clean up it than in the office. Right. So then right. uh, we would do like a second bath at the office and it would be like uh, basically just uh, getting as much of the sediment off and then relabeling photographs and measurements and weights and entered that all into the table for later use and we also um, basically made homemade bins for all
0: of them various (laughs) sizes you should take a patent out they're like customized (laughs) bins (laughs) yeah yeah So
1: we we made like a whole bunch of various sizes of bins because we have like fish weirs that are like the size of my pinky to like taller than me. Mm. Yeah, I remember
0: I remember carrying out a six foot tall one and trying to make a splint for it and I carried it. Oh, quite a ways, two kilometers or something back to the truck. <laughs> I, tried <my laughs> yes. I tried my best. So can I ask you again? Because I'm learning about this. I have I was not part of the conservation process. So I'm like I'm genuinely curious. So when you're doing the washing, are you using like the same marine water or are you using like diluted water? Or like how are you doing the washing?
1: uh we just use regular tap water. Yeah. Um and then we do regular um water changes and cleaning because they're they're very stink. Yeah, I <laughs> heard that. And it, that if they it get took, left. It took it took the like the smell stayed in the office for quite a long time. Yeah, the funk. We were we were quite happy to get a whole bunch of like uh CMT cookies to kind of cover the smell. <laughs>
0: Oh yeah. The cedar, the cedar would freshen it up a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. The little bit that I uh, know about uh, organic materials is what happens is when we have these like wooden features or wooden sites, there's actually a change that happens at the cellular level. And so when they've been waterlogged, the cells actually um, like swell up inside. And if we just take that water away, those cells will collapse. And with that, the the material will collapse, and so it, it needs to be slowly replaced with something that can hold those cells in like their stretched out shape. Very much a layperson's understanding. I'm sure there's people <laughs> listening like scientists <laughs> who specialize in waterlogged wood, and they're like, "What the hell is she telling people?" Oh, yeah. so that's why the water needs to be like carefully um traded out and so and so and then what was happening what was the cause of the funk was it just like what was it uh
1: it was from being at minute bay too long basically oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. minute
0: minute is kind of stinky funky yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay okay now i get it but bog, yeah i kept water this funk. water Bug water, yeah. I kept hearing about this and I wasn't quite sure. And also you mentioned labeling, but wasn't there a challenge related to the labeling or we weren't sure how to label or what did we end up using for labels?
1: When I first started with you guys, we were uh, using like uh, saran wrap and then just print it out label.
0: Right, so I'll, I'll kind of paint the picture for people then of what the office is looking like. We've got all of these stakes. How many stakes did we end up having? Hundreds, um, right?
1: Yeah, I want to say that the last count I counted was 247, I want to say, or something like that.
0: <laughs> so hundreds. And so they they range in size, like you said, from a small, like little bitty, like your pinky, up to like the height of a grown person, taller than you. We have them all in the office in various totes and bins. Like I heard uh, it explained as one of those underbed storage totes, mm-hmm, yes. right? And they have this water that is getting kind of funky sometimes and constantly being changed. And so these things are they're very very sensitive. So how long has this process been going on in the office? This this. Like this, tending to these stakes,
1: basically since 2019. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we're into yeah, year four.
1: 18, I think you guys did the first shift. In 2018
0: was the first, yeah, yeah. and yeah, yeah, um, and so we're going on five years, and so that kind of the reason I want to show that is it really speaks to the sensitive nature of these materials, um, and I wonder, like, if we if we can make the connection for folks, why are we putting so much effort? Into taking care of these uh, these belongings that ostensibly are like I'm doing air quotes just little pieces of wood, <laughs> right? So why are we putting this level of care into them? Why are they so important?
1: Uh, it's a part of our history. It's a part of our culture. This is this is how we fed ourselves. You know, it's uh, forgotten. We want to remind people that this is this is this is our roots.
0: And we're going to talk about that a little bit more as it relates to fishwears, but also other preservation in, in general. You know, we've had these these belongings in our office for going on five years. And right now we're going through a process where we're transferring um, the stewardship to the Canadian Conservation Institute in Ottawa. I wonder if you can kind of talk about like how you've been participating in that and what we're hoping will be this process at CCI.
1: We sent our first batch of fishwears. I think it was like maybe like 45 fishwears got sent in. I want to say it was September. Yeah that seems right. And they got they got back to us and said that we did like a really awesome job at packing and stuff like that and then we had a meeting with them and Candice Wilson had asked if they had any First Nations in their office, op- working in the office that she really likes um, promoting First Nations education and stuff like that and really wants a, a First Nation on it. So they said that they didn't, but they could look for one. And then Candice proposed that I go with one of the batches. And it's basically started the ball rolling on getting me to go with either the second batch or the third batch. They're going to show me the steps in what it takes to preserve uh, waterlogged artifacts and hopefully start a internship program through that with Museum of Anthropology because they are, have already started an internship. They want to send somebody to go to the Museum of Anthropology and kind of Get to know the basics and then after that go back over to Ottawa and learn more. So they basically they're trying to create more of themselves because there's only two of them that are doing it.
0: I was so surprised when they said that. Yeah. I'm like, that's our national conservation institute. There's two people. Yeah. (laughs) So then what is the hope? What would this mean then for the Heisla to have you trained this way? And supported by both CCI and MOA, potentially, like, what could this mean for the community?
1: It means that they have somebody to look after their own artifacts. Like, we have a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff a lot. needs to come back. Yes. In various places all over the world. And, you know, they, they weren't sold. Nope. <laughs>
0: that's no, that's an understatement. <laughs> uh, yes. And so it's part of what will ultimately be a repatriation of Heisla materials back to Haisla homeland, yes. which is so exciting. And alongside that building capacity. So then you'll be trained up in this highly specialized field. And then you could then train other members as well. Yes. Which is a pretty exciting feature. I think, and and really ties in with the goals. So we've been really talking about um, the weirs, but uh, it's interesting to consider the weirs because, you know, I've been uh, trained as an archaeologist. I've been working as an archaeologist for a long time, but I haven't actually dealt with much wet site material and most archaeologists haven't. And the reality is that most of the materials that people were living and using were textiles and organic materials, clothing, blankets, things like that, all of this stuff that doesn't preserve well. Um, And so when we do find it, it's super fragile. It starts to disintegrate as soon as it's exposed to the air. And so being able to conserve it properly is something that is absolutely critical, but absolutely not well understood. And I would say not well done. In the industry. And so, what we were going to talk a little bit about today is how we can improve preservation techniques in archaeology, not just for fish weirs, but there's all sorts of different examples that we can think of as well. What kind of comes to mind for you? Um, test holes. Okay, let's talk test,
1: about that. I, I never knew what a test hole was. I've seen my first test hole in person in, in 2019, it was right. so cool.
0: It's so they're so cool. So we'll kind of explain to listeners, though, CMTs are culturally modified trees, and they're the most common archaeological site that we have here in BC by like a factor of 10s and of 1000s. And then a test hole is a particular type of CMT. Did you want to explain um, what a test hole is, how it was used?
1: So that what they would do before they would like go cut down a tree for like a totem pole or a uh, canoe, they would test to see if it was like structurally sound on the inside so it wasn't rotten in the middle, right? They, they want to find the perfect tree before they cut it down. So what they would do is like they would put out these little square rectangular notches in there to see the health of the tree, basically. And if it wasn't healthy, they would leave it.
0: Right, right. So it's actually like a forest stewardship um, practice as well, because it's checking on the health of the trees. And then to fall a tree is a big deal, not just physically, but it means taking the life of the tree. So it wouldn't be done without serious consideration. And so folks would want to be testing the quality of the wood and make sure that it was suitable before they put the effort um, into falling it which would be considerable. So we've never really preserved test holes before yeah. as archaeologists. So like, can you talk to me yes. about how we might do that? I hadn't really considered that before.
1: When a CMT gets cut down, they have to um, take like a slice of it out, which is called a cookie. That way right, like the rings the rings can get uh, counted and it can get aged from like the time that uh, it became a tree to the time that it got stripped for right. cultural use. Right. And basically the same thing can get done with a um, test hole. It's just instead of cutting it, um, you're, you're just cutting out the test hole instead of cutting crossways.
0: I'm trying to wrap my head around this. So would you do just a thicker section or would you just kind of take out just, the part just where the. kind of like a little block right where the test hole is. <gasps> if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And yeah. we can also put um, photos um, uh, alongside this episode of like a CMT cookie in a test hole because it can be hard for folks, I think, to visualize if they yeah. have never seen one before. And so, you know, test holes um, are pretty unusual. I'd say, you know, I've seen m- many more like bark stripped CMTs than I have test holes. And so like what would preserving it do? Like what would be the impact of preserving it?
1: I really want it in, uh, like, the band office, the gym, the health center, the school, and, like, having, like, a little, like, blurb of what it is, how old it is, and, and where it was found, and why, why it's um, culturally significant. That way, we can, like, help uh, inspire next generations.
0: Right, and right. make that connection, show people.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, as a learning tool as well. What other ways could we improve our conservation techniques in a way that would help promote this level of community pride and education?
1: I would I would also say better cutting of the cookies of the mm. CMTs. Sometimes we just get a whole bunch of pieces and they're not labeled properly. So it's just <laughs> like... we we get like truckloads of them so we're trying to like um piece them all together to see it does this one go with this piece
0: (laughs) yeah so it sounds like there's a level of care that um you know foresters as well as archaeologists need to be promoting uh that shows these cookies and samples as being really valued belongings of the nation like that have great potential within them I think I think that as a discipline and as practitioners we can get a bit lazy and not put the care into things that we should be because we forget that they um, well a don't belong to us and b that they have great potential for education and cultural significance as well far beyond um, the significance that we might see in them something that comes to mind for me that I'm thinking of is going back to those wet site materials, like I kind of shudder to think how many organic materials like textiles and baskets and things like that have been lost oh, because yeah. archaeologists didn't know either what they were or how to care for them. Yeah. Which is so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> really, really, really bad. Um, it would be great if there was an opportunity to widen um this idea of internships that Archaeological companies could take on, and so in terms of building capacity for communities in the future, what do you see the role of archaeological companies in that? Like, what what's our re- responsibility?
1: I believe knowledge is power. Like with the fishweirs, when I was in the uh, Royal Roads course, the other students were saying that they used to walk around Minute Bay all the time and didn't know that the wears were there. So, yeah, knowledge is power. Like he he remembers seeing it but didn't know that it, what it was and like he grew up by like, hunting in that area so he he seen it a lot and just had no no clue what it was hmm. I had I had no clue what it was
0: right and how do you think archaeological companies can help with that like what can we do to help with I, that I, knowledge building
1: well Clanza is already helping because of the <laughs> because of the fishwears and like the cookies. Uh, last year, the Heisland Nation received their first ever return of cookies. Like they, mm. I don't think that they ever said yes to getting a return of cookies, and that was their their first time. Like the uh, BCTS was really surprised that they they had to come along with us and take pictures because. No nation has ever received cookies
0: mm. before. So, so it's and so BCTS is BC timber sales, just for folks who know that. So that's kind of like uh, the provincial forestry harvesting arm. Um and so do you think that um other archaeological companies have you know should be obliged to do things like internships and training and, and what that would mean?
1: Yes. Like my, my my family has learned a lot from me, just right. from me, me telling them. So the, the knowledge is getting spread around. So if other companies do the exact same thing, it will just, it will grow from there, right?
0: Right. And, and you know, the wonderful thing about it, it actually becomes this reciprocal knowledge transfer. It's not just about, for example, you gathering knowledge, we also get to benefit from your knowledge. And so it becomes this like circular sharing of information, which benefits everyone. Um, and what, like, do you think that clients should be made more aware of this too? Um, uh, you know, many, in many cases, um, you know, we try and find opportunities for clients to, to foot the bill, basically, for these internships and so on. Not because we don't want to foot the bill, we do, but they're expensive to do. And we don't, we don't, you know, archaeology, not huge, not huge profit margins, I'm here to tell <laughs> everybody. And so how can we better educate clients about their obligation to maybe leave communities in a better um, situation capacity wise than the way they found them?
1: Well, but like, like you said before, it it is sharing of knowledge. So if they have somebody that is from that nation already like working on the project that, that, that we're working on, that means that, uh, both people are getting that knowledge. Right. Both, both companies, both, you know, everybody that's involved, like right. not, not, not many people will, will share their knowledge just openly, right. You have to be, you have to have that connection and if you're already working together and already like in in a good situation that person's going to share their knowledge right you get a whole picture instead of you know what you learn in the books
0: yeah, exactly. And you can't really learn this stuff in the books. That's how we got into this problem in the first place <laughs> is <laughs> there's a whole bunch of stuff out there that aren't that isn't in the books. And then the benefit, I mean the the secondary benefit which is super important is not only is it knowledge transfer, but we're also building relationships and like getting to know people and build trust, right? Like so archaeologists are at a bit of a trust trust deficit when it comes to communities because we've had such a terrible history. And so we need to work hard to get that trust back. Um, And this is one of the ways that we can do that. The other great thing about internships and educational opportunities and and building capacity in community is it ties into the idea um, of economic reconciliation, which I first heard Chief uh, counselor Crystal Smith mentioned, which is that is a wonderful opportunity to help lift communities out of poverty, is giving uh, communities the tools to build capacity um, in support of their own interests and in support of managing their own heritage. So I think this is a really excellent example of that.
1: Yes, yes. When we had our our last meeting with CCI, I I, I can feel more doors opening.
0: Yeah, me too. I was sitting there and I was like, yeah, yeah. this sounds great. That was a good meeting, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I, I got a little bit emotional when I got home.
0: (laughs) It was, it was really good. And it's nice to see that they're on board and super supportive and and open. Yeah. And that hasn't always been the case um, with governmental organizations. So it's nice to see those changes happening and people kind of putting their money where their mouth is. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love if you could come back after you go to CCI and Ottawa and let us know the next chapter in this story, because it's a multi-year story <laughs> yes. that is thousands, <laughs> thousands of years in the making. Yeah, And so it's really nice to be seeing these additional chapters in real time. Um, And I'm so pleased and proud to have you on our team, not just as an archaeologist and Heisler member, but also as a conservation specialist. I'm really glad we're building capacity as a team that way. So thank you so much for being on the podcast, Hannes. Yes, thank you for having me. Okay, chat next time. Bye. Bye. Hey, folks, thanks for listening to this episode of Dig This. If you have any questions or there is something you'd like us to dig into, reach out online. You can find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dig This Pod. If you dig us, leave us a review and tune in next week for a new episode.